Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are beginning a study. We've just begun recently a study of the fourth gospel. We just really started verse one last week. And in this verse, we see very emphatically the deity of Yeshua. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now here, John, or Eleazar, uses the Greek verb eimi, which means to be or to exist. And it suggests continued existence. At the beginning of eternity, when there was nothing else out there, the Word existed. Clement of Alexandria wrote this, that the Word always existed is signified by the saying, in the beginning was the Word. Now with these opening words of the prologue, Eleazar traces the origin of the Word backward into eternity to where God the Son was present with God the Father before time as we know it began. It is what Yeshua expressed in His high priestly prayer in John 17 when He said, Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Before it existed, Father and Son are enjoying the fellowship together. Now, many try to say that John's concept here of the Word which is the Greek word logos, comes from Greek philosophy. And they want to put a lot of Greek meanings into this word logos. But the Greeks viewed logos as the rational mind that ruled the universe. But a Hebrew would have seen the word quite differently. And that's what I want you to understand. I don't think he's using a Greek concept of word here in a philosophical sense. He's using the word in the sense of the way a Hebrew would have understood it and would have meaning to them. Intertestamental Judaism, and especially the Targums, used the expression, the word of God, as a circumlocution for the name of God. Now last week at the question and answer, Jeff brought up the use of the word in the first book of Adam and Eve. Now, many say that the main story was created or written down probably two to three hundred years before Christ, the, the book of Adam and Eve. And then additions continued up to maybe the third century. Of the numerous apocryphal writings, this one seems to have been very influential on the early theologian and was widely popular from the third century to the 13th century A.D. The book is writ- a written history of what happened in the days of Adam and Eve. After they were cast out of the garden. Is it accurate? Is it true? I don't know, but I know that the first century saints relied on it heavily. Alright? And that's what's important for our discussion here. It's considered pseudepigrapha, a falsely ascribed writing, but it carried significant meaning and insight into that first century. In it, there are there seems to be basically three heavenly beings that interact with God and Eve. We see God, we see His angels, and we see the Word of God. God is usually the one speaking, but when action is taking place, He sends His angels or He sends the Word of God to do it. Plus, at times, God says the plan and the covenant with Adam is to eventually send His Word in the flesh and save them. 
Now, if this is written 300 years before Christ, we're getting some unique insight here. That's why people want to argue. That's why people want to date it later. They can't believe that they understood this stuff way back then. All right, we saw in our study last week that the word of Yahweh, as used in the Tanakh, was the visual manifestation of Yahweh. We saw that the Hebrew Scriptures taught a second Yahweh throughout the Scriptures. Now, the first book of Adam and Eve collaborates this idea. Let me share with you a couple of passages from the first book of Adam and Eve. Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. And the word of the Lord came to Adam and Eve and raised them up. And the Lord said to Adam, I told you that at the end of the five and a half days, I would send my word and save you. So here we see that the word is capitalized. And the word comes to Adam and Eve. Now notice, and it says, the Lord said. So again, we have here, just like we saw in the Tanakh, you got the word saying something, but then you got the Lord saying something. They're used interchangeably as going back and forth. Chapter 26, 2 and 3. When we were on the mountains, we were confronted by the word of God that talked to us. All right, this is not, you know, a Bible or something. The word of God is a person that talked to them. And light that came from the east shone over us. But now the word of God is hidden from us and the light that is shined. So notice here that the word of God is associated with light. We're going to see that exact same thing in John's gospel in the next couple of verses. It's what we see in our text. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, those first century saints had an idea what he was talking about. They didn't see it as some philosophical power or force or thinking. They saw it as Yahweh. He's not talking about Greek philosophy. He's talking about that second Yahweh seen all through the Tanakh. And his readers would have understood this. They would have understood the word was Yahweh in human flesh. Alright, so we did that much last week. Let's move on. Okay? And the word was with God. Now, last week we focused on the Word, because I wanted you to see from the Tanakh how that was used. I wanted you to see what that meant. But in order to understand what Eleazar is saying here, we need to focus now on the word God. (laughs) And I know that might seem simplistic, but who was it that was with the Word? See, our text says the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I have to ask, what God? Who's God? See, the Anglo-Saxon word God means the invoked one. The English word God is very nebulous. It really tells us nothing about who the word was. So who is the word? Is it Tot, the Egyptian god of magic? What God? See, in deism, God is the creator of the universe, and He went and He wound it up, and He set it into play, and He let it go, and He's detached from it, He has nothing to do with it. Is that the God he's talking about? And pantheism, God is in everything. He is the universe. Now, when referring to God, a follower of the new age is not talking about the transcendent, personal God who created the universe, but is referring to a higher consciousness within themselves. Muslims believe that the God, the one God, the one almighty God is named Allah, who is infinitely superior to and transcended from humankind. Hindus acknowledge multiple gods and goddesses. 
So who is the God here? Who, who, who is it that the Word is with? You say, well, you just, you're nitpicking. I, maybe, but follow with me on this, okay? In the Greek, the word God is a translation of the word theos, meaning mighty one. Theos can refer to a man. It can refer to a deity. The context determines its meaning. Now, assuming the word always refers to a deity is an error. The Greek used it many times for people who were in authority. They called them mighty ones, theos. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, they translate El, Elohim, and Yahweh, all of them, as theos. Now, hopefully that has some significance to you, okay? To translate Yahweh as theos is a huge mistake. It is destroying the name of Yahweh, alright? It is covering it up. Yahweh includes the verb hava, meaning to exist. And the letter yod as a prefix means he, so Yahweh means he exists. Now, if it's a causative verb, it would mean he causes to exist. But both are true. Yahweh is the self-existent one who causes to exist. But the Greek word theos simply means strength. Now, almost 7,000 times in the Septuagint, they mistranslated Yahweh as Theos. They remove the name of Yahweh from the Tanakh with the Greek translation. And in the New Testament, they remove the name of Yahweh from our Bible. The closest Hebrew equivalent to Mighty One or Theos is Elohim. Elohim is used 2,606 times in the New American Standard Bible. Elohim is simply the plural of El, which comes from a root word meaning might or strength. So El and Theos, very similar, all right, in their meaning. Elohim is plural, but it's what grammarians call a morphological plural. You know what that is, right? Hebrew nouns that end in I am are plural. But in most cases throughout the Tanakh, the meaning is singular. And we know this from Hebrew grammar. <coughs> Elohim is like our English word deer or sheep. How do you know if deer is singular or plural? Well, you've got to tell by the grammar of the sentence, you know, because it can be used either way. All right, I shot a deer. Well, that would probably be singular, okay? You've got to tell by the context, all right? Well, in the very first use of Elohim in Genesis 1-1, the verb bara identifies the subject of the verb as masculine singular. So even though it's a plural word, See, people make a big deal about, oh, you know, the very first verse of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word. You know, I mean, <clears throat> God created, in the beginning, God created, and the God there is Elohim, so they say, see, that's a trinity there. Well, it's a singular, okay? It's a singular. Yes, it's a plural form, but it's singular because of the context, all right? Now, you may think of Elohim as another name of Yahweh, but Elohim is used in Scripture of many others besides Yahweh. What I want you to see is El and Theos, very similar in their use. But the, the Tanakh made very clear to add almost 7,000 times in the Tanakh the word Yahweh. Because that's His name. And they wanted us, He wanted us to know His name. Yahweh is called Elohim 
over 2,000 times. Because Yahweh is a God. In Genesis 1, we know that Yahweh is called Elohim there. But here's what you have to understand. He's not the only one called Elohim. Yahweh is the only Yahweh, but He's not the only Elohim. Elohim is used of the gods of foreign nations. We see that in 1 Kings 11.33. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Astaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. Well, here goddess and god in this text are Elohim. So Elohim is used of foreign gods. It's not talking about Yahweh. It's talking about foreign gods. The angelic watchers or the divine council are also called Elohim. Psalm 82, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Here, God and rulers are both the word Elohim. Wasn't it nice of the translators to take the word Elohim and decide to change, use it in the same verse, but one translated God and the other translated rulers? That's called translator's bias. Okay? They, they, they think He's talking about the rulers. They think he's talking about Jewish rulers or something, which is kind of foolish if you look at the next verse. I said you are gods, Elohim, and all of you are sons of the Most High. All right, so he's saying you're gods, but then lo is what he says next. Nevertheless, you'll die like men. So he's talking to men and he says, you're going to die like men. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's how most men die. Okay, but if he's talking to gods, he's talking about we're going to take away your immortality. You messed up. This is the divine council. God is in the council. He's talking to him. He said, you are Elohim. You're sons of the Most High, but you're going to die like me. He's going to judge them because of their sin. So Elohim is used of foreign gods. Elohim is used of the divine council. God's in that council. Elohim is used of demons. Now you want to you know, take that same word. That's what I said. It's, it's, you know, these words are so broad. Deuteronomy 32.17, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Here God is Elohim and gods is Elohim also. So the demons are called Elohim. I like this one because most people miss this one, but you know, Samuel, the wit, when uh, he was dealing with the witch of Endor, the witch of Endor said this, The king said to her, do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said, I see Saul. I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. That's Elohim. You say, well, wait a minute. All these other ones are gods. And how does he get to be in that? What connects Samuel with these others that are demons or gods or foreign gods or Yahweh? What's the connection there? Well, the Tanakh refers to, I think Heiser, let me let him say it. He says Elohim is a place of residence locator. Alright? Meaning that Elohim is used of those who are in the spirit world. Samuel was dead. Not here anymore. So now he is an Elohim. He is in the spirit world. So you can see that Elohim has a broad range of uses. It's not strictly referring to Yahweh. Yahweh is called Elohim. But Elohim's, all Elohim's are not Yahweh, obviously. Anyway, my point is that Elohim, like Theos, is used of many different spiritual entities and is therefore not a good substitute for Yahweh. 
Yahweh is found almost 7,000 times in the Tanakh, not once in the New Testament. The sad thing is, even in our scriptures, it's covered up in, in the Tanakh. It's translated Lord instead of Yahweh. They've just removed the name of God from the scriptures. It is Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of the universe that was with the word at the beginning. Yahweh. God could mean different entities, but there is only one Yahweh. So here's my problem. To me, theos, and I've never heard anybody bring this up or talk about it. So maybe I'm out to lunch, you know, and you can give me some feedback if you will. But when when you're in the New Testament and all you see is theos, and theos is used for all kinds of different things, it's not a good substitute at all. Where's Yahweh in our New Testament? Listen, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with Yahweh. He wasn't with a demon. He wasn't with a false god. He wasn't with Samuel. He was with Yahweh. And I think that's important. Now, to distinguish the one true God from pagan deities, the majority of Greek texts precede the noun theos with the definite article ha. All right, so they say, well, well, we'll fix that. We'll make it tell. So they'll be able to tell if it's the real God or just a false God. We'll put a definite article in front of it. Okay? Now, to simply say the God does not prove that he's the supreme deity, does not prove it's Yahweh. Matter of fact, for example, let's look at a few verses where they put the definite article in front of Theos. Ha, Theos. Philippians 3.19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. Is this talking about the true God? No, but there's a definite article there in the Greek. Hathios. What? Whose end is destruction, whose the God is their appetite. Here their God is their belly. It's just pleasure. They want to be happy. That's their God. But it's used, this is how they're designating the true God? The word theos also denotes the heathen God of idols. Look at Acts 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done and raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men. And here it's ha theos. That's kind of crazy. 1 Corinthians 8.5 For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords. Again, the definite article is there. Ha theos. So how is this usage designating the one supreme God. Even Satan is called Theos. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In whose case the God of this world. Now notice here in this verse, this is what's interesting. Hathios is used of Satan here. Hathios is used of Christ here. So what's that tell you? I mean, you're using the same exact word for both of them. So they say, well, that's how they designate in the Greek. So Theos in the New Testament is very much like El or Elohim in the Tanakh. The problem in the New Testament is there's no other name used to distinguish Yahweh. The God of gods. The Lord of lords. And when Eleazar says the word was with God, he means Yahweh. He doesn't mean a deity. He doesn't mean someone in the spirit world. He means Yahweh, the supreme God. I love this verse in Joshua. Listen to what Joshua says. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh, 
the mighty one, God Yahweh. He knows, and may Israel itself know. This phrase, the mighty one, God Yahweh, is El Elohim Yahweh, and it can be translated, Yahweh is the greatest God. Love that phrase. El Elohim Yahweh. Yahweh is the greatest God. He's superior to any of them. There's no comparison. And that's why it's just frustrating to me that there's, not, there's no indication of this in the New Testament. None. It's just theos. And if you know Greek, you know theos is really nebulous. Notice he says it twice. El Elohim Yahweh, twice. I want you guys to get this, he's saying. I want you to understand. I think the translators have really blundered by using a generic word, theos, to refer to Yahweh. Or maybe they weren't trying to refer to Yahweh. Maybe they're just trying to make it, I don't know. I I don't understand the cover-up. I really don't. I mean, I don't understand how men who are learned, you know, take the name of Yahweh out of our scriptures. You know, so often he he wants his name to be known that he used it almost 7,000 times and yet we've removed it. All right. So when John Eleazar says the Word was with God and the Word was God, the Greek here is Theos, but I'm completely assured that in the mind of John, he is talking about Yahweh. That's who he was with. That's who the Word is with. Now let's look at that first verse. The Word was with Yahweh. Now, the English here doesn't pick up the significant implication of the Greek text. It might be better translated, the Word was face-to-face with Yahweh. The relationship of Yahweh and the Word of God is more than just, uh, you know, they're there together, they're side-by-side, they're working together. No, this pictures an intimacy. The Word was intimately connected with Yahweh. It paints a picture of the Father and the Son enjoying intimate fellowship throughout eternity, being face-to-face. F.B. Meyer, commenting on with God, says... The preposition with means communion with and movement towards. It denotes the intimate fellowship subsisting between two. The implication is clear that the Father had fellowship, listen, with a person. Not a philosophical principle as the Logos is often abstract in Greek. We see this fellowship in the very last verse of the prologue in verse 18. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He hath explained Him. So the phrase here, in His bosom, clearly speaks of intimacy. It speaks of communion between the Father and the Son. Listen to Christ pouring out His heart in Gethsemane before He goes to die. He says, now Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. He says, Father, I want it to be like it was before. I want to have that intimate face-to-face fellowship that we had at one time. Alexander McLaren writes this, The second clause of John 1.1 asserts the eternal communion of the Word with God. The preposition employed means accurately towards and expresses the thought that in the Word there was motion or tendency towards and not merely association with God. It points to the reciprocal conscious communion and the active going out of love in the direction of God. See, we, we, read, we don't get that. We just read the with is a, is a communion. 
Now we saw in our last study that wisdom was spoken of as a person who was present with God in creation. Wisdom was personified, providing life and light to the world. Well, Proverbs 8.30 gives us a little glimpse of the Father's wisdom and the delight there that the Father and the wisdom are sharing together. It says, Then I was beside Him as a master workman, and I was daily His delight, rejoicing always with Him. The Word is, is rejoicing with the Father. It's fellowshipping with the Father. They're enjoying this intimate time together. Now for Jews in the time of John, the wisdom of God was eternally coexistent with God. It was God's active co-worker in creation. Wisdom was the Father's delight. Now, the theological importance of these words is that they distinguish God from the Word and the Word from God, the Father. In other words, John is telling us that although the Godhead is one holy, eternal God, God the Word and God the Father are not the same person. The Word was with God. He's with them. So there's two distinct people here. John 17, 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Here the Son prays to the Father, both of whom are Yahweh. So you have Yahweh the Son praying to Yahweh the Father. This, this throws a lot of people off. They just can't seem to wrap their head around this, alright? The words was with God, prohibits us from seeing no distinction between the Father and the Word. This with infers a relationship, an interface, an interaction between two distinct persons. There's a distinction, people, between the Son and the Father. William MacDonald concludes from the phrase, the Word was with God, that the Word, Jesus, had a separate and distinct personality. He was not just an idea, a thought, or some vague kind of example, but a real person who lived with God. In light of the grand truth that the Son and the Father enjoyed eternal intimacy with each other, it's even more amazing to ponder Paul's second uh, Philippians chapter 2 when he talks about the kenosis of the Son leaving heaven and becoming a man. This first verse... And John really destroys the idea of modalism. You understand what modalism is? You ever heard that term used before? Modalism denies the distinction of persons in the Trinity. Okay? Basically, they say, well, the Son is the Father putting the Son's hat on, or now He's the Father, and, you know, it's a quick change artist. I'm doing this, now I'm going to be this person. Now, it's all just the same person, just, you know, changing what He's doing. Um, he's appearing and operating in different modes at different times. So there's no really distinction. Just one person switching hats a lot. That's modalism, and that's garbage. So don't worry about it, all right? The truth is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three are the same essence, But there are three separate distinct beings. The Trinity is not three gods. See, people people want to argue about the Trinity and say, well, the Jews believe in monotheism. There's one God. You're exactly right. One God. No one ever said we've got three gods. We've got one God who exists in three persons. I can't understand that. doesn't mean it's not true. All right? Eleazar goes in the last phrase of verse 1 to say, and the Word was God. You know, that can't get any clearer, people. It really can't. In fact, these, there's four words here in the Greek 
They're the clearest declaration of the deity of Yeshua in all of Scripture. That's it. If people want to argue about the deity of Christ, take them to John 1.1. 1, 1. The word was God. The Greek verb, amy, means to be, to exist, and suggests continued existence. So the word always existed as Yahweh. Now, John doesn't say the word was divine. He doesn't say the word was like God. He makes a bold statement. The word was God. There's no room for anyone to see Yeshua as any less than God himself. John Phillips writes, that is in his essence and what he actually is in his nature, person and personality and his attributes and character. Jesus is all that God is. All the essential characteristics of deity are His. Herbert Lockyer says, What a tremendous phrase this is. The Word was God. Now watch what he says. Language has no meaning if these four words do not clearly teach that Christ is very God of very God. Amen. But people won't argue. Arthur Pink says this, a more emphatic and unequivocal affirmation of the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is impossible to conceive. How could he say it any clearer? Barrett writes this, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of Yahweh. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. So it's very important, people, we get this first verse down, okay? Because he's right. you got to get this. When you're reading the whole rest of the book, it all comes on this statement that Yeshua is Yahweh. The Word literally was Yahweh. Yeshua is God in a body, nothing less. The full, mysterious deity of Christ is exemplified in His humility and His unbelievable condescension. He became a man. We'll get to that in the end of the prologue. And so at the very beginning, John lays it down that Yeshua is the living Word. He alone is the perfect revelation of Yahweh. Now, it's at this point that Yeshua is Yahweh that the Arian controversy of the early church and some contemporary pseudo-Christian cults deviate from the biblical perspective. The heretic Arius and his modern disciples, Jehovah Witnesses for one group, argue that Yeshua was not eternal. Rather, he was the first created being. So God created him, and then he let him do the rest. Okay? That's heresy. All right? John says, the word was God. That's what the text says. But on the basis of a flawed and inconsistent interpretation of the Greek text, this last phrase in verse 1 is often translated, the word was a God. Reducing Christ to being less and different from God. It was a God. He's not the God. He was just a God. Jehovah Witnesses mistranslate this verse in their 2013 revised New World Translation. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was a God. If you ever argue with Jehovah Witnesses, they'll bring this verse up all the time. All right? If a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim says to you, what we have in our Bible is a mistranslation. It should read, the word was a God. Tear your clothes, throw dust in the air, and run away screaming, heretic! Okay? 
Because that's blasphemy. They don't know what they're doing. See, what they do, though, because they, they, you know, they don't just make this stuff up. Well, they do, but they try to have some reason for making it up. They claim that the Greek here has no definite article. All right? So that a God is more literally correct. Because the definite article is not there. They say it should be a God, not the God. This view comes from knowing a little Greek. Just a little. Okay? And you get dangerous. Got Questions notes this. The New World Translation is unique in one thing. It's the first intentional, systematic effort at producing a complete version of the Bible that is edited and revised for the specific purpose of agreeing with the group's doctrine. Isn't that great? The Jehovah Witnesses and the Watchtower Society realize that their beliefs contradict Scripture. So what do they do? Change your beliefs? No, that would be too hard. Let's change Scripture. I just don't understand the stupidity of this, okay? If you don't believe what the Bible says, then throw it out and go on with your life. All right? Don't rewrite it to make what you want to be in there because that's not the Word of God. All right? So rather than conforming their beliefs to Scripture, they just altered Scripture to agree with their beliefs. They got some people together and they said, let's write a new Bible. The New World Translation Committee went through the Bible and they changed any Scripture that didn't agree with Jehovah Witness theology. The most well-known of all the their translated, their perversions, is John 1.1. As I said, the original Greek text says the word was God. The New World Translation renders it the word was a God. Now, there's a good reason why Theos has no definite article in John 1.1. And why the New World Translation rendering is an error. There's three general rules we need to understand to understand why. Now, let me go a little deep here. Let me talk a little bit about the Greek because this is critical for our understanding. You might not understand this, but you can look into it and you can hopefully figure this out. Because we need to understand what John 1 is really saying. It's very important. The deity of Christ is central to everything. Okay. First of all, in the Greek, word order does not determine word usage like it does in English. Okay. In English, a sentence is structured according to word order. Subject, verb, object. Thus, Harry called the dog. is not the same as the dog called Harry, right? But in Greek, a word's function is determined by the case ending, found attached to the word's root. There are two case endings for the root thea. One is s, theos. The other is n, theon. The s ending normally identifies a noun as being the subject of a sentence while the N ending normally identifies the noun as a direct object. All right, so the second rule. When a noun functions as a predicate nominative, in English, a noun that follows a verb, uh, being verb, such as is, in case ending much must match the noun's case that it renames, so that the reader will know which noun it's defining. Therefore, Theo must take the S ending because... It is renaming Logos. Therefore, John 1 translates to Kai, Theos, and Ha, Logos. Alright? Now, is Theos the subject or is Logos? See, both have the S ending. Well, the answer is found in the next rule. Okay? Rule number three. In In cases where two nouns appear and both take the Case, same case ending, 
the author will often add the definite article to the word that is the subject in order to avoid confusion. So John put the definite article where? Ha is logos. Ha logos. All right? Instead of theos. So logos is the subject and theos is the predicate nominative. In English, this results in John 1.1 being read as and the word was God instead of God was the word. Some people want to translate this. Well, this really says God was the word. No, it doesn't really say that. You just got to understand Greek to understand what it does say. All right? So that's important, people, to understand. These guys who wrote this translation are not scholars. They're not Greek scholars, and so they did the best they could, maybe. I don't know, but they messed it up, all right? But the most revealing evidence of Watchtower's bias is their inconsistent translation technique. All right, if you got some rules, then you use the rules consistently throughout your translation. But throughout the Gospel of John, the Greek word theon occurs without a definite article. The New World Translation renders none of these as a God. They don't do that anywhere else. Just three verses after John 1, 1, the New World Translation translates another case of theos without the indefinite article as God. Even more inconsistent, in John 1, 18, the New World Translation translates the same term as both God, capital G, and God, lower G, in the very same sentence. So there's just no consistency to their translation. They're just making it fit their theology, which is the craziest thing. Like I said, just throw your theology out. Your theology is not inspired. The Word of God is. Let's line up under it. So they intentionally changed the rendering of the text to conform to their theology. The New World Translation is a perversion, not a version. But I guarantee you, if Jehovah's Witnesses come to you, that's one of the verses they're going to tell. Oh, no, no, he wasn't. Jesus, they'll say, wasn't God. He was a God. And they'll pull out their Bibles now. See, they used to have a problem with this because they used to use regular Bibles and, oh, it doesn't say that. So now they got a Bible that actually says what they wanted to in there and they can show you from their text. Well, let me show you several instances throughout the Scripture where Yeshua claimed very clearly to be God. See, now if He's claiming to be God, He's either a liar He's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. You gotta take your pick, okay? Because if he's a good, well, he's just a good man. No, good men don't claim to be God. Alright? Lunatics claim to be God, or God claims to be God. So you gotta pick what it is. And that's what I don't get, because it's so clear in the scripture. We looked last week at the Tanakh. Let's look at a few verses in the New Testament this time. John 8, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Who does He think He is that He can save someone from their sins? Well, He says, I am. What Yeshua says is, unless you believe that I am. See, the translators added He there. That's not in the text. They do this to help you, you know, reading, smooth out the reading, but that's not what it says. He says, unless you believe that I am. That's what He's saying. And by doing so, he's asserting a quality with Yahweh himself, who was revealed as the I am who I am, the self-existent God. And that's what he's, he's going back to Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's who you should tell him. Moses said, who do I tell him? Who's sending me? And he says, Ehia, Asher, Ehia. I am that which exists. 
In this gospel, seven times we're going to see in John, Yeshua claims, I am. Imagine, it's just seven times. You know, that magical, perfect number, and he claims seven times, I am. He's claiming to be Yahweh. In John 8, 24, he's clearly implying that belief in him can save a person from their sins. Who can do that but God? Paul understood that Yeshua was Yahweh. In Philippians 2, 5, and 6, he says, have this attitude in yourself. What attitude? Well, he's going to go in to talk about Christ's humility and sacrificing himself for us. So that's the attitude we're to have. Have this attitude, self-sacrificing humility, which was also in Christ Yeshua, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word existed here is the Greek word huparko. It's not the commonest word for being in the Greek. That would be amy. But it's a verb that stresses the essence of a person's nature. It is to express the continued state of a thing. It is unaltered, unchangeable. Paul said, Yeshua unalterably and unchangeably exists in the form of God. That's speaking of his preexistence. Hey, that's what John said. And the word form here is morphe. And morphe has nothing to do with shape or size. Moulton Milligan say that morphe is a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. It refers to the essence or essential being. Yeshua pre-existed in the essence of God. And when Paul uses huparko, being, and morphe, form, he is saying something very specific. He is saying that Yeshua, the Christ, always existed in the unchangeable essence in the being of God. Yeshua the Christ is God, and He always was. That's the heart and soul of the Christian faith, people. Yeshua is Yahweh. Yeshua the Christ is eternal God. As part of the Trinity, He always existed. He's co-eternal, co-equal with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. In Colossians, Paul put it this way, In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Man, that's a packed statement there. The word dwells here. It means to settle down and be at home. The present tense indicates that the essence of deity continually abides in home at Christ. He's fully God. Fully God. So what is it that permanently indwells Christ? Well, it's all the fullness of deity. The Greek word translated deity here is an ontological word. What it means is it has the idea of essential nature or essential being. The essential ontological nature of Yeshua the Christ is deity. He's Yahweh. Eleazar also writes in 1 John, and we know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding so that we know Him and is true. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Yeshua the Christ. This is the true God. The Son of God, Yeshua the Christ, is the true God. Another clear example of Yeshua claiming to be God that we often miss because we don't know the Hebraic mindset too well is the story of Zacchaeus. Yeshua comes along. Zacchaeus is up in a tree. And Yeshua said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The background of this statement is so important, people. It's probably Ezekiel 34. 
God is angry with the leaders of Israel for scattering and harming His flock, the people of Israel. So He states that He Himself will become the shepherd and He will seek and He will save the lost. Look at Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost. Bring back the scattered. Bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. So what did everyone who knew the Scripture hear Yeshua say? He's saying, I will seek the lost. He's saying, I'm Yahweh. Yahweh said that. Now how can He say that? Because He is Yahweh. That's how He can say that. I got a kick out of this. David Flusher, anybody familiar with that name? He was a devout Orthodox Jew. He was a professor of early Christianity and Judaism of the Second Temple period at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. All right, He said this, You poor Christians, you wonder why the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God more often. It says it all the time. You just don't understand Jewish thought. Pay attention to him. That's right, poor Christians. You don't get it. These Christians are running around. They don't even know who he is. Here, Flusher, I know who he is. I know who he claimed to be. It's very simple. Let me give you one more. Revelation 1.8. I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God. Now, I don't believe for a minute he said Alpha and Omega. Aleph Tav. Okay? He's not using Greek letters here. He's the Aleph Tav. And that is so significant all through the Scriptures. I think it's close to 7,000 times we see the untranslatable et, et, or Aleph Tav throughout the Scriptures as a designation of Yeshua. It's buried all through the Scriptures in some very significant points. You're not going to find it in your Bible because it doesn't show up there. You've got to go back to the Hebrew language and you'll see the Aleph Tav all over. They just don't translate it. They don't know what to do with it. It's Yeshua. He told them when he got to the New Testament, listen, I'm the Aleph and the Tav. But not only that, let's go back to Isaiah 44. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Again, he's claiming titles that Yahweh took. In light of Isaiah, clearly Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh of hosts, the only living and true God. Wayne Grudem writes this, Although our infinite minds cannot comprehend the mystery of the Trinity, Scripture is clear that God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. Each person is fully God, and yet He is not three gods, but one God. He was in the beginning with God, John says. In the second verse here, was is an imperfect form of Amy, and it means to be. It's the usual verb for existence. This statement clarifies further that Yeshua was with God before the creation of the universe. It's a further assertion of Yeshua's deity. He did not come into existence. He always existed. He did not become deity. He always was deity. Four times in John 1, 1 and 2, he uses the imperfect tense of the verb Amy. To say the Word was God. All of John's statements regarding the pre-existence are all in this tense. But in John 1.14, he uses the verb ginomai. The Word became. He wasn't, but He became. Very, very important. 
It's an aorist tense, and the aorist usage here refers to some historical time in the past as beginning of a new state. He always was God, but he became, at a point in time, at a point in history, he became a man without ceasing to be God. So Yeshua is 100% man. 100% God. You say you can't have 200, you don't have it anywhere else, but you do have it in the hypostatic union. Okay? John's description of the word as with God shows that Yeshua, Yeshua was one, in one sense, distinct from God. He was and is the second person of the Trinity who was distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit in the form of a substance. However, John was also careful to note that Yeshua was, in another sense, fully God. He's not less of God than the Father was, or than the Spirit is, in essence. John made one of the great Trinitarian statements in the Bible in this verse. In his essence, Yeshua is equal with the Father, but he exists in a separate person within the Godhead. All in one verse, just packed with theology. Now, since Yeshua is God, then people can know what God is like. See, to know Yeshua is to know God. For Yeshua said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Often the Scripture tells that God is invisible, but if you want to see Him, you just look at Yeshua. So if you want to know what Yahweh is like, you just have to study the Gospels. And as they reveal Christ, you get to see Yahweh. You know, Thomas fell down before our Lord Yeshua And he said, my Lord and my God. And I think this is what Eleazar wants us to do. He wants us to come to the worship of the Son as God. He wants us to confess my Lord and my God. And so he begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, what I'm going to tell you is an account of the deeds and the words of the Lord Yeshua. And I want you to understand them as the deeds and the words of Yahweh. Because Yeshua is Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would give us a discerning heart and mind. That we would have the heart of Bereans. Lord, we would take things that we hear and we would examine them. We would search them out. We would not buy into them. We would not reject them, but we'd study them, Lord. Give us a hunger for truth, Lord. Help us to know you in an intimate way. And I pray that the more we understand who you are, it will affect how we live day to day, Lord. That we would live in such a way to be a representative of you here on this earth. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right. Any questions, comments this morning? What we covered? Believe it or not, that's controversial to some people, the idea that Yeshua is Yahweh. They just... And again, I think Flusier had it right. You poor Christians. If you just understood. At the cross, after Christ was there and said, uh, surely this was a God, but then it's which is depending because sometimes the literal says it says the son of God right. and if you look in my Bible on the side it says 
a son of God. So is that that same kind of thing, a matter of you need to know what... Well, yeah. See, I mean, what, what was he declaring there? Was he declaring... He was declaring he was a divine being. Yeah. You know, was it any more than that? And again, that's why I think the terminology is so important. And I just... The more I study this, the more frustrated I get that, you know, Yahweh's gone from our Bible. I mean, Yeshua, Yahweh, is gone from our Bible. They just took it out. We don't have it anymore. It's had this nebulous theos in there. And we don't think much about it. So we have to, you know, I guess dig and figure out what, what's going on there. Yeah, our translations aren't always that clear. It's good to have several translations together. You know, read in different translations so you can kind of pick up what's, you know, sometimes in the notes they'll tell you, well, here it says there, this, you know. And sometimes you've got to do a little research and try to figure out what, what should it say there, you know. John from the Philippines. What's going on, John? He says, how do we get through on sharing with oneness when it comes to the Trinity? Well, John, I really think it's like anything else. Some people just, I don't care how many... You sh- facts you show them, I don't care what you present to them, they're not going to believe it. Some people's attitude is, I know what I believe, don't confuse me with the facts. Alright? They just don't want to change. And by oneness people, he's talking about people, they they don't believe in the Trinity, they just believe there's one God. And I agree with that. All of us would agree, there is, that's what we have to tell these people. Yes, you're right, there's only one God. We believe the Jewish Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. But yet, the Jews had two Yahwehs they saw all through the Tanakh. How does that reconcile? Because they were both Yahweh. There's only one God. But that God exists in three persons. Now, people, oh, you know. It's not a oneness perspective making their Jesus out to be a schizophrenic as he prays to the Father in the garden. And that's basically what they do. You know, okay, well, there's only one. Who's he praying to? Well, most of them would say, Jesus is not God. All right? And that's a good question. Who is he praying to? Well, he's praying to the Father. Well, Pete, you know, I read some arguments last week from some, you know, Unitarian that wanted to say Jesus wasn't God. And the arguments were just ridiculous, you know. And he wanted to base it on monotheism. You know, so he wanted to argue from monotheism. And I'm like, not a problem there. We agree with that. But he used statements that Yeshua made. I don't know the time of my coming, you know, it's committed only the Father knows. See, he didn't know something. You don't understand the kenosis. When Christ came to be a man, he limited himself. He didn't exercise all the prerogatives of deity. He didn't function as God doing whatever he wanted to do. Here's what we have to understand. When Yeshua was a man, he didn't operate in his deity. You say, well, he did some incredible things. Everything he did, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything he did. The miracles. Why? The apostles did many of those same things. Why? They were operating the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't operate in his deity because he's an example to you and I, and I don't have deity that I can operate in. But I do have the Holy Spirit that I can depend on and walk in. So we're to be a follower of him. We're to follow his example. And the miracles he did, none of them were, you know, look who I am. He could have floated over the crowd, just hovered there. I'm God. And they would have said, well, maybe you better believe this guy, you know? No, he didn't do that kind of stuff. The miracles were to demonstrate his deity, for sure. But he didn't do crazy, dumb things. So I think we just have to understand, in his humanity, in becoming a God-man, he limited his deity. He didn't operate in it. He didn't do the things God does. He, he was dependent upon the Spirit 
And he walked in the Spirit. 